Once upon a time, there was an actor who was in the biggest film franchise in history, but he was unhappy. He thought those who had hired him were taking advantage. At the same time, one of the stories he was acting in might not have been written by the author whose name was on the book. Together, the real author and the disgruntled actor would team up to compete with the highly successful franchise. Today I have the story of the Thunderball Saga. It's how two James Bond films were released within months of each other in the same year on the 190th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. I hope everybody is doing fantastic this morning. For those in the States, I hope you had a wonderful and joyous Thanksgiving weekend. Mine was really good except for the weather. It's cold and rainy and just blah outside, but I hope the weather by you is better than it is here. So, this is my second to last episode on the Psycon Network. It's been a great run. I'm sorry to see it end, but, you know, it's time to move on. In two weeks, I'll have one last episode before shutting it down until next year. I'm going to use that time to regroup and figure out exactly what I want to do. Now, like I said, it's Thanksgiving weekend here in the United States. That's a time for families to get together, to have a feast, maybe watch a little football and fall asleep on the couch. It's supposed to be a celebration of a time when the pilgrims dined peacefully with the Native Americans back when the first settlers were arriving from Europe. I think that might be a story for another day. But because it's Thanksgiving weekend, I decided to do a story about James Bond. You see, this is one of the stories I already knew a lot about. I have a thing for, you know, movie trivia and whatnot. And since it was going to be a busy weekend, I thought, well, it would be an easy one to tell. Don't get me wrong, it's an interesting story. That's why I know a lot about it already. But it didn't require a lot of research like some of my stories. Anyway, enough of my rambling. Why don't you go grab a hot cup of coffee, I already have mine, and get ready to hear the story of when two James Bond films were released in the year of 1983. Sean, can we begin by backtracking a bit um, and go over the old ground? Why did you stop playing Bond? Oh, backtracking. It's a long way back. Well, uh, I stopped mainly because uh, the films escalated, got longer and longer, became more and more difficult to uh, legislate in time. They got more and more hardware, and the producers were frightfully greedy. <laughs> There's something special about the James Bond franchise, don't you think? I mean, the last so long. Eon Productions, the company started by Harry Salzman and Albert R. Cubby Broccoli, began in 1962 with Dr. No, and continues to the present day with Cubby's daughter, Barbara, running the show. The latest Bond film was Spectre in 2015, with No Time to Die coming next year. That'll be the 25th Bond film in the franchise. There's been six actors to play the part of 007 in the series. The current Bond, of course, is Daniel Craig. 
Before him, Pierce Bronson, Timothy Dalton, Roger Moore, George Lazenby, and the first, and some people still think the best, Sean Connery. Connery played Bond in five films between 1962 and 1967 before being replaced by George Lazenby. And then Connery returned for Diamonds Are Forever after Lazenby was let go. After Diamonds, Connery said that he would never play Bond again. But then in 1982, two Bond movies were released, the Roger Moore Eon production film Octopussy and the Sean Connery non-Eon production Never Say Never Again. Yes, Connery was back playing James Bond. The man behind the film was named Kevin McClory, and this is the story of how that film came to be. You see, Never Say Never Again was based on the Ian Fleming book Thunderball. Thunderball was the ninth Bond book in the series and was the book Salzman and Broccoli wanted to use for their first Bond movie. But there was a problem. The novel was involved in a court case, so instead, Dr. No became the first film. Ian Fleming was an author, journalist, and naval intelligence officer. In 1953, he published his first novel, Casino Royale. Casino Royale wasn't made by Ian Productions until the year 2016. This was due to the fact that the rights to the novel had been sold to CBS for an episode of the one-hour television adventure series Climax in 1954. In that version, the character was named Jimmy Bond and played by the fully American actor Barry Nelson. That's why the only other non-Eon Bond film was the comedy Casino Royale starring Peter Sellers, Orson Welles, and Woody Allen in 1967. Anyway, Ian Fleming always had his eye on films for his Bond character. In 1958, he began talking to a friend, Ivar Bryce, about the possibility of a Bond film. Bryce introduced Fleming to Kevin McClory, a young English writer and director. Fleming was attracted to McClory because he had written and directed a film called The Boy in the Bridge. And even though the film was poorly received, Fleming began working with McClory on a James Bond film project. The three of them, Fleming, Bryce, and McClory, ended up forming a company called Xanadu Productions. Throughout 1959, they worked on an original screenplay for a film. It went through many changes. It began with an airplane full of celebrities and a female lead called Flatima Blush. It went through many changes with titles such as Spectre, James Bond of the Secret Service, and Longitude 78 West. Eventually, Fleming became less and less interested in working with McClory and began spending less time working on the screenplay, so McClory brought in experienced British playwright and screenwriter Jack Winningham to help. Winningham had been writing in films since 1939, when he co-wrote the British comedy spy film Q-Planes. McClory and Winningham eventually wrote a script they called Longitude 78 West and sent it to Fleming. Fleming liked what he read, but changed the name to Thunderball. No film was ever made of the new script, so Fleming went back to Goldeneye, his Jamaican estate, whose name would also be used for a later Bond film. By that time, he had written eight Bond novels and was running short on ideas. So from January to March 1960, he adapted the Thunderball screenplay into his next book. In March 1961, the book was done and credited to Fleming alone. Before it was published, McClory had read an advanced copy and wasn't too happy. McClory and Winningham 
immediately petitioned the High Court in London for an injunction to stop publication. A plagiarism case was heard on March 24, 1961. The decision was to allow the book to be published, but McClory was allowed to take other legal action. So on November of 1963, the case was heard at, at the Chancery Division of the High Court. By this time, Ian Productions had begun making their James Bond films, starting with Dr. No and then from Russia with Love. As I said, their first choice was Thunderball, but considering what was going on, that didn't happen. The proceedings lasted three weeks, and during that time, Fleming suffered a heart attack. Fleming's friend, Ivar Bruce, convinced him to make a deal with McClory, an out-of-court settlement. McClory gained the literary and film rights for the screenplay, while Fleming was given the rights to the novel. Although it had to be recognized as being based on a screen treatment by Kevin McClory, Jack Winningham, and the author. About a year later, Fleming would suffer another heart attack, and this time he would die. That was on August 12, 1964. In 1965, right after Goldfinger, a film which really took Bond to the next level, Thunderball was made. It would be the fourth Ion Productions Bond film. Both Broccoli and Salzman knew McClory was going to be a problem. In fact, McClory was already planning to make his own James Bond movie since he had the film rights to the story. It was such a problem that Broccoli and Salzman made a drastic deal. They gave him full producer credit on Thunderball, crediting themselves only as executive producers. They thought this deal would end their problem with McClory forever. Now, something else troubling was going on at that time. Sean Connery was getting more and more unhappy, especially with Cubby Broccoli. The Scottish actor was born Thomas Sean Connery on August 25, 1930. He had been in the Royal Navy. After being discharged from the Navy because of a dual denal ulcer, he took a number of jobs, including a lorry driver, a lifeguard, a laborer, and even an artist model for the Edinburgh College of Art. Richard DeMarco, a student at the time who painted several early pictures of Connery, described him as very straight, slightly shy, too, too beautiful for words, a virtual Adonis. He began bodybuilding at the age of 18. While his official website claims he was third in the 1950 Mr. Universe contest, most sources place him at the 1953 competition. He stopped competing after he found out the Americans frequently beat him in competitions because of their sheer muscle size. For a while, he had an eye on becoming a professional footballer. But, as he later said... I realized that a top-class football player could be over the hill by the age of 30, and I was already 23. I decided to become an actor, and it turned out to be one of my more intelligent moves. He already had quite a few credits on both stage and screen before he was chosen to play James Bond. Now, the story goes that Hollywood had no interest in making Bond films as they were too British or too blatantly sexual. Harry Salzman had spent every penny he had to buy up the rights to the James Bond books, but he didn't have the money to make the films. Cubby Broccoli wanted to make the movies, but didn't have the rights. So the two of them formed a company, Dane Jack, which holds the rights to films, and Eon Productions, which would produce them. Eon, by the way, is E-O-N, which stands for Everything or Nothing. 
But for a while, they just couldn't convince a studio to produce their films, but eventually, United Artists came through. As I previously stated, Thunderball was their first choice for a film, but they settled on Dr. No due to the legal dispute. The first person they thought of to play Bond was Cary Grant, probably due to his role in Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, but Grant would only agree to one film, so that wouldn't do. Next, they tried Richard Johnson, Patrick McGowan, and even David Niven, but they all turned it down. Then they met the 30-year-old Sean Connery. It is said that he won the role through a contest called Find James Bond. Although there was a real contest, Connery was not involved. The actual winner of the contest, they thought, wasn't up to filling the part. When Sean Connery got with Broccoli and Salzman, he put on an act, acting all macho, a man with a devil-may-care attitude. Salzman and Broccoli were so impressed that they knew they had found their man, and they quickly signed him to a five-pitcher deal. But as time went on, Connery got more and more unhappy. Fame had gotten the best of him because, at the time, James Bond was huge all over the world. Connery couldn't go anywhere without being recognized and hassled. It was too much for the star to handle. And on top of that, he felt underpaid for the amount of work he was being asked to do, not only for making the films, but publicizing each movie as well. He thought he should be paid more. He was, after all, star of the biggest franchise in movie history. The media attention he was receiving was almost too much for him to handle. During the 1967 filming of You Only Live Twice in Japan, when the superstar was photographed sitting on the toilet in a bathroom, Connery had just about had enough. And he was a type who always worried about money. So he went to Broccoli and Salzman and asked for more. They refused and that really pissed him off especially because he knew that Broccoli and Salzman were making a ton of money and had each renegotiated their deal for more money many times. For Broccoli and Salzman, they thought they had created a monster. Quickly, anger grew and both sides began hating each other. It didn't help that Harry Salzman wasn't a very good people person. He was known to yell and scream in anger if he was unhappy. That made any kind of a relationship between him and Connery impossible. In fact, during the filming of You Only Live Twice, Connery stopped acting and stood silently. It was because Harry Salzman had walked onto the set, and Connery refused to start acting until he left the room. So after You Only Live Twice, Connery announced that he was done. It was time for him to move on to try new roles, to get away from James Bond and Broccoli and Salzman. The producers quickly announced that James Bond would continue with a new actor taking over the lead role. Eventually, they hired former model George Lazenby, a man with no acting experience. Lazenby starred in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, but by the end, he was getting a little insecure about playing Bond. This was the summer of love with hippies, long hair, rock and roll, peace, and drugs. And Lazenby felt a little out of place playing the clean-cut, tuxedo-wearing secret agent. When he showed up at the premiere of On Her Majesty's Secret Service with long hair and a beard, it was too much for Broccoli and Salzman. Lazenby would later say, The producers made me feel like I was mindless. 
They disregarded everything I suggested simply because I hadn't been in the film business like them for about a thousand years. In the end, he was let go, though some say it was a mutual decision. After Lazenby was gone, Broccoli and Salzman began looking for somebody else, but United Artists had different plans. They wanted to repeat the success of Goldfinger, so they hired the director of Goldfinger, Guy Hamilton, to direct, got Shirley Basie to sing the theme song just like she had done on Goldfinger, and most importantly, got Sean Connery to come back, paying him a record $1.25 million and a percentage of the profits. As well as the money, he got a two-picture deal of his own choosing and a guarantee that he wouldn't have any direct contact with Broccoli or Salzman if he didn't want it. And it worked. Diamonds Are Forever made a lot more money than the Lazenby picture had two years earlier. But it was the last time Sean Connery played Bond in an Eon production. Two years later, Live and Let Die would star Roger Moore and would be very successful. The film got great reviews, and it was the most profitable Bond film to date. Any fears that Broccoli, Salzman, or United Artists had of the franchise not surviving the loss of Connery were put to rest. But Kevin McClory was still around, and he still owned the rights to a Bond story. Now, it's said he had started working on his own movie as early as the late 60s, even though he had to wait 10 years after Thunderball before he could do his own thing. Along the way, Eon Productions did everything they could to block his progress. It wasn't until the 80s where it started to really come together. Now, it must have seemed an almost impossible task to convince Connery to return. When McClory approached Connery, just as he was finishing the film The Wind and the Lion, McClory said that he knew Sean was done playing Bond, but would Connery be interested in writing the screenplay for a Bond film? Connery liked the idea, thinking the current Bond series had lost its way, getting caught up in gadgets and action at the expense of good storytelling and characters. So together with a man named Len Denton, they took four to six months to write what at the time was going to be called Warhead. And as the script came together, Connery was talking to his wife, Michelina, telling her how good the story was coming along. And apparently she said, well, if it's that good, why don't you play the part? After a little thought, he decided, yeah, I should play Bond. Of course, once he agreed, there was some hefty negotiations to, to deal with. Eventually, the 52-year-old Sean Connery ended up getting a deal of $3 million plus script approval and a percentage of the profits. One wonders if there wasn't a little, let's stick it to Salzman and Broccoli by releasing another Bond picture at the same time Theirs was coming out. It was Connery who helped bring in Klaus Maria Brandauer and Max von Sydow. Irving Kirshner, who had just achieved a huge success with The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, was hired as the director. And it was Kirshner who suggested bringing in former model and Playboy cover girl Barbara Carrera to play Fatima Blush. Connery's wife had met up-and-coming actress Kim Bassinger at a hotel in London and suggested her to Connery, which he agreed. Bernie Casey, a black actor, was chosen as Felix Leiter, as it was thought a black actor might be more memorable for the part. And for comic relief, comedian Rowan Atkinson was cast. 
It was also Michelina Connery who suggested the name Never Say Never Again, referring to Connery's statement that he would never play James Bond again once Diamonds Are Forever was done. Of course, writing the script was a challenge as they had to avoid anything that might cause a legal issue with Eon Productions. Things like the beginning gun barrel opening scene. Anything that was not part of the Ian Fleming books that was created specifically for the films couldn't be used. But the production didn't go well. The inexperience of producer Jack Schwartzman frustrated director Irving Kirshner. Sean Connery was asked to do a lot more than just act, taking on a lot of production duties. Connery would get very upset at times with the lack of professionalism on set, and he was on record as saying that the whole production was a bloody Mickey Mouse operation. By the end of production, tensions were so high between Schwartzman and Connery, they wouldn't even talk to each other. Producer and star took an instant dislike to each other, which lasted for the duration of the filming. They had a very poor relationship, admitted director Irving Kirshner. It goes well beyond what you can imagine. Barbara Carrera noticed this too. She said, Sean and the producer just didn't get along at all. They hated each other. A lot of people have commented that they thought Schwartzman was just afraid of Sean Connery. And Sean Connery would later say that the film wasn't as joyful as it should have been. Filming went over budget and shooting took a lot longer than expected. But on October 7th, 1983, the film was released about four months after Eon Productions' Roger Moore film Octopussy. The movie got mostly good reviews. I remember liking it when I saw it in the theater, but I don't really think it holds up today. I remember at the time being really happy about the fact the film was going to play off the aging James Bond, but quickly that's dropped and we go into a more traditional James Bond story. And then there's the theme song, the one that just keeps repeating Never Say Never Again. It's... it. It's just, well, in this podcaster's opinion, bad. Now, the press tried to play it off as Bond versus Bond or Connery versus Moore. But in the end, Octopussy's box office gross was $187.5 million on a budget of $27.5 million, while Never Say Never Again's box office gross was $160 million on a budget of $36 million. Octopussy won, but not by all that much. By the way, for the record, the first Bond film, Dr. No, was made for about a million dollars. In 2006, Kevin McClory was planning another Bond movie, again based on Thunderball. It was going to be called Warhead 2000 AD and was going to be made through Sony Pictures. It was put on hold for some legal reasons and then never made. And then Kevin McClory died on November 20th, 2006 at the age of 82. On November 13, 2013, MGM and Danjack LLC announced they had acquired all rights and interests of the McClory estate. MGM, Danjack, and the McClory estate issued a statement saying that they had brought an end to the legal and business disputes that have arisen periodically for over 50 years. Is it fun coming back? Uh, you, you laid off for 12 years and to come back and, and pick up the bond roll? Uh, well, it was a bit arduous because uh, I hadn't anticipated so many sort of hassles with the 
production and everything. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go. You know, I watched Never Say Never Again while I was preparing for the show, and well, in my opinion, it doesn't hold up. And I'm a big James Bond fan. I still love watching all those old films. But this one, well, God, it was just flat-out boring. And the fact they replaced the Baccarat game with a video game, well, it's just crazy. Of course, the Roger Moore ones by this time were getting very silly as well. I just watched A View to a Kill recently. That's the one in which Christopher Walken wants to take over the computer microchip industry. And speaking of Bond, I was a big Timothy Dalton fan. A lot of people didn't like his two films. They tried to get away from the silliness of the Roger Moore films and take a more serious tone. It didn't go over all that well, but now it seems to be working for the Daniel Craig series, so maybe, you know, the Timothy Dalton films were just a little ahead of their time. Anyway... (laughs) How about the ending credits? I want to thank everybody who supported the PsyCon Network for years. I won't tell you to go to our Patreon page since uh, the network's shutting down, but I'm still available at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that, hey, come over and join that's where, in 2020, you'll find out the future of Coffee with Jeff. If you want to support the show, why don't you go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars? That really helps. And all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Sycan's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, my wife of 35 years for being my wife of 35 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to everybody who reposts this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks a lot. Bye.
Coffee.